Yo, what up, Kingfish? Oh my, Aqua Lads and Aqua Lasses. I tell you what, the Aqua Cave is known as a as a, as a very water-heavy natural uh, chasm that's found here in the world, where normally it's a pretty comfortable place to be. But right now, guys, I'm feeling the heat, which means it's time to head downtown for the newest episode of Kingfish, a Shane McMahon audio journey. I am Johnny C, and thank you again so much for joining me here in the Aqua Cave as we relive the fantastic saga of Shane McMahon's stint on commentary on a professional wrestling show. Guys, I can't thank you enough for coming back into the Aqua Cave. I hope you have a lot of fun here just to let everyone know up front so expectations are clear. This is a fun, tongue-in-cheek recap, reliving, if you will, of WWF Sunday Night Heat from its opening days in the dog days of summer in August of 1998, all the way up to Shane's departure in, I believe, October of 98, when he becomes more of an on-screen character involved in storylines as opposed to just being Vince McMahon's son, who's super annoying on commentary. If this is your first time uh, joining us here on Kingfish, I really recommend going back and checking out our first episode. Not because, you know, I make more money when you download it, because, hey, I don't make any money out of this. I just do it for fun. But here's the reason why. I can tell you with certainty that a lot of Shane McMahon's uh, Shane-isms, some of the things he does on commentary that are ridiculous, folks, I mean, they just, they evolve from week to week, and, and you start to see patterns form. And I think for maximum enjoyment, you know, have partake, being a person who partook in the first episode will certainly make your experience a better one. But all that being said, let's dive into the deep end and start talking about Sunday Night Heat episode two. You know, it aired on August 9th, 1998, uh, just 20 days in a year past uh, Judgment Day, uh, because we all know August 29th, 1997 uh, was the day the Skynet went live, and, uh, you know, the world was never the same. Actually, I'm um, I'm still getting over uh, the traumatic events of Skynet attacking, so we'll just move on. It was taped on July 27th in the San Diego Sports Arena in beautiful San Diego, California. So hopefully there'll be some shitty signs in the uh, auditorium so I can easily say, you stay classy, San Diego. But since I just did it now, alas, I don't think I'll do it in the actual show. And speaking of the show, as usual, we get the sweet WWF Attitude Era Era introduction, followed by the awesome Sunday Night Heat uh, opening theme song with the ridiculous DX green screenshot and lots and lots of China flexing, which I'm kind of okay with. Just check my search history. Anywho, we start off... Bringing the heat, if you will, with representing the hottest, hippest, happening thing on television today. Well, it's me, Shane McMahon. He doesn't even take the time to introduce his broadcast partner. But it is Shane McMahon on the call with good old Jim Ross, Jr. 
Actually, I probably should have said good old JR, Jim Ross. But folks, I am up here without a net. So it's real simple. Either this podcast is going to succeed or one of my kids is going to grow up to become Robin. And if you don't get that reference, may God have mercy on your soul. Speaking of mercy on your soul, someone in the auditorium has a sign that says Dusty Roads Can't Book. And while that's not really funny or even like a sick burn, it really reminds me of that time period when WCW was starting to fall apart, when Dusty Roads kind of fell out of vogue, if you will. Now look, life and the wrestling business are uh, citrical in nature, okay? It's a big fucking circle. You know, sometimes you're on top and then nobody cares and then you're on bottom and then nobody cares and then you're back on top. You know, the cyclical nature of it all, I think, is what, uh, you know, the CEO of a company would say. Um, but it's just interesting here because we're, we're coming off of, in the real world, to put a time stamp on this, uh, the valiant, heroic, uh, man-sized performance of Cody Rhodes in the Hell in a Cell contest against Seth Franklin Rollins. And I got to tell you, the Rhodes family is back on top. So this guy feels pretty stupid holding this sign back in 1998, I'm sure. And speaking of feeling stupid, everybody out there, it's time to play a game. And no, it has nothing to do with Triple H. We're going to play a real game. Now, on WCW Must Die here in the Aqua Cave, sometimes we play a game called Fun with Closed Captions, 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 Captions. But folks, this isn't WCW Must Die, it's Kickfish. So we're going to play a game called Shane or Cereal. It's real simple, folks. I'm going to say some words. And you're going to tell me if it's something that Shane McMahon said on commentary or a popular children's breakfast cereal. So, for example, I could say Cocoa Puffs. And you have to wonder aloud, do I think Shane McMahon would actually use the word Cocoa Puffs in a commentary sentence on a broadcast of Sunday Night Heat, or is the correct answer Cocoa Puffs the cereal? All right. Now that everybody understands the rules of the game, let's play. And hey, no cheating. And if you cheat and you happen to have a fish or uh, some crabs or some octopus that you'll be eating in your house for dinner later tonight, I'll know because I can talk to fish. That's an Aquaman joke. Eh, I don't want to lay it on too thick, but that's an Aquaman joke. So here we go. Participants, get your hands on your buzzers as I read the clue. Kaboom! Anyone? Oh, you all look stumped. You don't know. It is a ridiculous thing to say, but I don't know if it sounds like anything I've ever eaten. Up. We are out of time. Well, folks, let me put you all at ease. If you said Shane McMahon, you were right. But hey, if you said cereal, you were right. Because as the lights in the arena dim and we hear an old pipe organ and some fire explodes out of the stage, we hear someone yell, Kaboom! And it is indeed the error apparent Shane McMahon announcing the arrival of the big red machine, Kane, 
Mankind, and Uncle Paul Bearer. And before we go too far, Kaboom was also the name of a fantastic breakfast cereal. It's basically Fruit Loops that didn't taste exactly like Fruit Loops with marshmallows. It sounds a little bit like the greatest cereal in the history of mankind, the real Ghostbusters animated cartoon cereal, which if anyone out there has any sway in the cereal space, I'm begging you to bring back. You may also know Kaboom from such films as Kill Bill, Volume 1, when Uma Thurman, or excuse me, when Vivica A. Fox attempts to shoot Uma Thurman with a gun she keeps in a box of the cereal called Kaboom. And you may also recognize it from the freaky-ass clown that appears on the box. And speaking of freaky-ass clowns, let's talk about Mankind and Kane. And before we do, you know what? Actually, let's not talk about Mankind and Kane. okay? Uh, we're going to talk about Mankind mostly, because I don't want to talk about Kane, Because Kane uh, needs to check himself before he wrecks himself with his errant-ass tweets about firearms. And hey, if you disagree with me, you can fuck yourself uh, and, and move on with your life. Now, as Kane, or well, as some dude in a red gimp mask, Paul Bearer and Mankind enter the ring, this gimp individual lifts his arms and puts them down rather quickly. As he does, fire emerges from the ring posts, as we all know will happen when this person is in the ring. However, fucking. Somebody call Paramount Plus because we've got a lawsuit on our hands. Somebody on commentary uh, does a funny voice and says, Fire! 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 Fuck me sideways, folks. We're not even a minute into this episode. And Shane McMahon is already doing a Beavis impression on commentary. Strap on your seatbelts, folks. It's only segment one. I do want to backtrack to just a little bit earlier in this first segment. Because as Kane, Mankind, and Bear are coming down to the ring, Shane McMahon says that, unquestionably, the conspiracy escalated on Raw. Which is crazy, because this is I, this, this is a multitude of things, all right? And we, we have to discuss them and then figure out which one is the truth and which is the fiction. So, Shane McMahon says, unquestionably, which we all know is a registered trademark of Vince McMahon Commentary Incorporated, okay? So, uh, I see three scenarios. One, Shane is literally just emulating his father, not as an act or a shtick, but it's his influence and he pulls, you know, we all, anyone who tries to do something, if they're inspired by anyone, they, they sort of pull a little bit of that inspiration into whatever it is that they are doing. For example, if someone told me to write a sci-fi comic book, I'm sure there would be at least one thing you could point to and be like, okay, so he kind of is borrowing this element from Star Wars, clearly, but I get it. And I think that's okay, as long as you don't steal, of course. I'm not advocating for that. But the second theory is, is that uh, Vince is literally in his ear producing him, and Shane's just going for it, um, which I wouldn't put past Vince McMahon producing anyone and everyone, and that's okay. But it's hilarious that Vince would tell him to say something that is exactly what he would say. I mean, can you imagine JR being 
Being like, Austin, he's, he's got him in the, wow, what a maneuver, what a maneuver, it, it, Austin's won the title. You know, I mean, like, it doesn't work. It feels different and it feels very strange. But is Vince basically okay with bossing his son around? Because not only is he, quote unquote, a low-level employee, he's also just my kid. All right. The third thing is that Shane McMahon is actively playing a character that is actively aping Vince McMahon as either his idol or someone he's mocking. And there's too many fucking wrestling layers to that, but let's really just analyze it piece by piece. So, uh, like I said, theory one, Shane McMahon's a real person who's accidentally emulating his, emulating his dad. Step uh, uh, Theory two, Shane's being told what to do verbatim by Vince. Or step three, Shane McMahon is putting on a performance as a version of himself that looks up to or is mocking Vince in the story of the show. Now, you might say, okay, that's too many fucking layers. This isn't, uh, you know, Inception here. Just fucking, it's wrestling. Deal with it. Get over it. But it's interesting because there's... I almost want to give this company credit to the point where nothing is left to happenstance or accident, and that really is a thing now. But I'm curious what the direction was, because Shane's not good at this, and I understand giving someone a trial run or a chance. Absolutely. And I'm not saying I'm any better. Please, please, all right? I'm just trying to figure out what it is we're really dealing with here, a subpar announcer or a character. But hopefully, as we continue, we will find our answers in this audio journey. But in relationship to Sunday Night Heat, they are talking about the item that is unquestionably a conspiracy is between Kane and The Undertaker because on Raw, there were some shenanigans where Kane did not protect the uh, his partner, Mankind, from an assault by The Undertaker. And so, Mankind's kind of feeling like an island unto himself. And I didn't expect this to happen along on this journey, okay? And I'm not saying that I've discovered some sort of uncut gem, sorry, Adam Sandler, or some sort of awesome moment in in wrestling history that's been forgotten or what have you. I just, I didn't remember this, and this being the promo I'm about to discuss... And it is a Mick Foley promo. So that's what these three are out here to do. Well, Kane and Paul Bear are here to stand and watch Foley do his magic. All right? And I'm going to paraphrase here. And I think I am going to do a Mick Foley voice just for fun. Because reading it verbatim is something you could do on your own. You don't need me for that. You can just watch the show. The day before King of the Ring, I took my two kids to Santa's Village. I think that's the one in New Hampshire, judging from some research I did. Oh, hey, this is Johnny C again. I cut into, you know, give information that's not the promo. I'll switch back to the promo now. And my four-year-old daughter, I think he's talking to, um, so I was going to say wrestler in training, Noel Foley. Wait, is that her name, Noel? Fuck, is that his wife's name? No, his wife's Colette. No, Noel Foley, that's her name. Yeah, because I was going to say, I looked it fucking up because I thought she was a wrestler in training. That's how out of the loop I am. Um, She is not, though. She is OnlyFans content creator, Noel Foley. And when I say that out loud, you might be thinking to yourself, 
wait, why do you know that? And like I said, I Googled her just now, like as I did my notes at prep, okay? And I just want to give a shout out to Noel Foley as a as an entrepreneur, okay? Because here's what I learned in the four seconds that I did when I Googled her. So apparently this gal just started an OnlyFans page, okay? Which totally one thing or another, it's irrelevant. That's not the, well, actually that is the point, but just get it out of your head right now. Here's the point. So I looked at the price point and we're talking uh, $19.99 a month for a subscription fee. And it looks like you are indeed locked in for that month once you commit, which is fine. That's a pretty normal business proposition for a monthly service. It looks like there are 12 pieces of media available to consume from this content creator, okay? And it looks like there are 5,600 subscribers because it says 5.6K, all right? That means that she's already... Taking in before taxes, of course, or any other you know third party fees, one hundred eleven thousand dollars. Excuse me, one hundred. Let's just round it up. One hundred and twelve thousand dollars. Not bad, man. Not bad at all. Good for you. And you know what? If people were willing to pay that much money to see me do some modeling, I would absolutely do it for three. Three. It's a three reason show, by the way. Number one, the money. Number two, I feel like it could be kind of fun to do some like fun shenanigans, like do some modeling, like, oh, this is a really nice suit. Or, hey, we're going to dress up like such and such characters today. That could be a fun little way to, to make money. And number three, holy fuck, people are willing to pay that much money for a picture of me? I mean, you want to talk about, that's like Lex Lugo, Lex Lugo, Lex Luger level of I don't, I'm gonna, I was going to say narcissism because Lex Luger was a narcissist, but it's not narcissism. It's self-elevation. Like, hell yeah, man. Good for you. People are willing to pay that much money. Uh, that's fantastic. And this was not this. I mean, I'm like, it's like she's my own daughter. I'm so proud of her. But that's good for you. It's, it's such a Foley thing, isn't it? To go out there and, and I don't want to say give the least because you're not giving the least because Foley's a hell of a performer. But I'm sure at times he felt like Especially standing next to like the rock, you know. I mean, how do you, how does a person find value in themselves when their peer is the rock in anything? Um, and I would say that when it comes to wrestling, uh, fully is it, it's irrelevant. That's not my point. But my point is, is it's such a fully thing to be like, uh, yeah, I'm going to take 12 pictures and I'm going to put them on the internet and I'm going to make $112,000 just like that. Like, that's brilliant. That's fucking amazing. Good on you, Foley family. But back to the promo. Back to the promo. All that from me going to say wrestler in training because I thought the gal was still a wrestler in training. But alas, I was wrong. But hey, I'm proud of the Foley family. (laughs) I'm so proud of those kids. They were so, you know, when I was raising those kids, I didn't know if they were going to make it. But... Uh, anywho, my four-year-old daughter kissed me on the cheek, and I said to her, what was that for? She looked me in the eyes and said, because you're a good man. And the next day, at King of the Ring, the Undertaker tried to take it all away from me. So, basically, 
he's accusing the Undertaker character of not only trying to destroy him in King of the Ring, but trying to destroy this amazing bond that and connection and emotion that exists between two people, which is such a fully thing to do. And it's such a simple relationship in terms of it's extremely universally understood, father-daughter. But it's such a complex uh, relationship as well, because when someone's a parent and someone's a child, it comes with all its complexities. And here he is using it as a wrestling character's motivation. Not to mention, it's interesting to me that the Mankind character has these children because he also refers to himself as Mick Foley. But he says, he finished, Foley says, I I finished the match. Jim Ross said, I deserved a standing ovation and only 200 out of 20,000 people gave me one. The fans were too stupid to know that they were witnessing history and they were witnessing an amazing performance from him, and he will never wrestle for the fans again. And if you expect him to go out in a blaze of glory, it's not going to happen. It won't be Cactus Jack leaping into a dumpster or mankind crashing off of the cage through a table. The sad fact is he's going to slowly lose all his functions, and no one will give a damn, and that's what will destroy mankind. He warns Cain that he's going to talk shit about The Undertaker. And Kane, if he has problems with that, can talk to him about it later. He says, Taker, find the guts to face me man-to-man tonight. And then he says, with God as my witness, I'm going to tear you apart. Playing off of the, with God as my witness, he's broken in half. And this is a fresh wound still, literally and physically, because it's it's instantly an iconic moment of, uh, commentary and presentation, but they're already he's already calling back upon it in its iconicness, which is really cool to see. Uh, and then, of course, finishes with a, have a nice day, if I didn't mention that already. And I'm like I said, I'm really glad I saw the promo. I realize it is reminiscent of and somewhat derivative from the, and I'm doing the finger quotes, the Kane Dewey promo, uh, because it's a reference to one of his children and one of his children's and, and ne- excuse me, negativity surrounding the child, reflecting upon his relationship with professional wrestling and the fans. It's different, but there are subtleties there. And I think that he was able to take perhaps the highest level idea of that Kane Dewey promo and rebrand it and restructure it for a different audience for different circumstances. And that, folks, is why Foley is good. Bottom line. Really glad I saw it. So... This evil trio leaves the ring, and the lights come up, and we do a talking head segment with the announcers. As the lights rise, I notice instantly that Shane McMahon has two more friends. Now, this is interesting, because these these, uh, fans or friends are indeed a couple of ladies. Now, I know for a fact that at this point in his life, Shane McMahon was married, and no... I don't know that because of Wikipedia. I'm aware of this because I have actually seen the pictures of Shane McMahon's wedding. Well, what'd you do, Johnny? Did you Google him or not? And no. And look, this is not like a flex. It's just a cool story that I honestly have completely forgotten about until I was prepping this episode when my gag was going to be, gee, Shane, does your wife care about these ladies? And then I, you know, it all sort of came tumbling back to me. So when I was in college, I worked in a retail establishment and one of my co-workers at this retail establishment that I'm not going to name and, you know, all that jazz and all that stuff, uh, you know, 
what's important is the story, not who. Okay. So I, I, you know, it came across over time that I was a wrestling fan. You know, there were a couple people at work that I'd gab to with it and stuff like that. It's, you know, it's like that with anything. And she casually mentioned to me that she was related to the McMahon family. And of course, instantly I was like, oh, of course you are. Because, you know, <laughs> I mean, come on. But, you know, I'm all, I should maybe preface that that I'm a very skeptical person. Um, but sure enough, got the deeper conversation. And it's probably a good thing that I forget the exact connection because it wasn't too far removed from the family to be like ridiculous. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, my mom is. Vince's fifth cousin on his dad's side, which is, that's a real thing, but it's also, you're kind of reaching into like ludicrous levels of connection. It's your six degrees of Kevin Bacon, sort of, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, I, um, I know, uh, you know that guy, Carl Urban, the actor? Yeah, I, I saw him one time. You did? Well, my mom saw him when she was uh, on a work vacation and she was waiting in a taxi and her boss saw him at the airport. You know, just the further you get away from it, the less of an impact it has. And I, I, you know, I, I eventually started to believe her because she was slipping to me information. But it was also information that at the time could have easily been obtained. And if you were a casual fan of the business, or at least around it, maybe you got a buddy who always watches it or something like that, you could tangentially probably name some of the McMahon family characters. And boy, was I in for a shock when I showed up one day and I had at my disposal... Um, first-hand photographs from Shane's wedding. Nothing intrusive, nothing ridiculous. Just, you know, and, and and this wasn't a flex on her part either. It was just sort of, it. you know, I've tried really hard to not condemn anyone. It was a very innocent thing. It's not like I learned some sort of critical information from it or anything like that or, or did something naughty uh, by looking at some pictures of a family event. It just so happens that it was a family event of someone who happens to be in the, uh, the public spotlight. They didn't take pictures of them and sell them or anything. But it was really cool and it was a lot of fun and it was crazy to see, like, Vince and Linda, I think I saw, I did think I did see a picture of like Vince and Linda dancing together, uh, which was interesting. And I think I saw Shane like being held up by his groomsmen, like real, like this isn't the publicity photo that we send out sort of thing, which wasn't a thing at the time, but you know, so it was really cool experience and I really am appreciative for it and uh, glad that I got to share it now in front of, uh, you know, people. So that was fun. Back to the show though. As, uh, the boys talk, that being Shane and Jim Ross, the friend who is closest to Shane McMahon throws a wad of tissues on the table. I don't know what it means. I don't know what the tissues were used for. I don't know why they were wadded up, but she certainly does it in front of the camera. And on a taped show, they've decided not to edit it out. Shane McMahon says, tonight, someone's going down. Hey, have you met Mariah and Linda, by the way? JR says, oh, hello, ladies. Now Linda says, hello. And Shane O'Mac says, Linda, what's up with your voice? You sound like Minnie Mouse. (laughs) I swear to God, it really happens. And oh my fucking God, here comes a 1998 Vader ready to lock horns with a 1998 Mark Henry. Vader, on his way to the ring, does sort of a... He does the Vader shuffle, the thing where he's like, who the man, who the man? 
but it's a very lazy version because his legs barely move and the you know how he put his hands into the V? It's it's a very slippery looking V. It kind of looks like he's just doing the four horsemen symbol and it's almost a V. It's super fucking funny. But we head to a commercial and we're back. And I think that they cut out a fucking SummerSlam 98 promo because the first thing Shane says as we're back is, the highway to hell ends in three weeks. It's going to be hot when Stone Cold Steve Austin battles The Undertaker. So I guess we're now promoting Austin Undertaker. Last week we were promoting Austin and Kane. So it sounds like something probably happened on Raw. And, you know, that's fine. It's a good deal. But I really wish that that promo was still in there. And to be truthful with you, I went on YouTube and watched one uh, after the fact. Uh, a couple of signs in the in the auditorium. Just want to take note of. I got, a, I got a lot of signs this week that were about the war. You know, the, the WWWF war. We've got Goldberg failed SCU, which isn't like funny or good, but it, it gets on camera a lot. And then Cheetawin which is a fucking awesome catchphrase that I completely forgot about that I want to bring back into my everyday lexicon. You know, like maybe if uh, I walk by the vending machine at work and notice a candy bar and D2 is almost out and I shake the vending machine a little bit and it falls down and I just go, cheat win, and then grab the candy bar and run away. I mean, it could happen, right? Possibly. But I do want to get into the match proper because holy fuck, it was a doozy. It starts out with Mark Henry pushing Vader. We get, oh, look at that, pie face! Which is hilarious because you know Vader really wants a pie in that face. Vader punches Mark Henry in the gut, and we get a little tease. Because Shane McMahon says, oh, Vader, going downstairs. So, this week, fans, Shane McMahon really wants to get downstairs as opposed to downtown. Now, I don't know what happened in a week. I don't know if he got kicked out of the club downtown or if maybe uh, mom and dad, you know, bought a mini fridge downstairs where they hide all the soda. But that's where he desperately wants to get this week. Mark Henry gorilla presses Vader. Okay, just like the ultimate warrior would. And when he drops Vader, that is, the man they call Vader lands on his feet. However, he forgets that gravity is going to dictate that his entire body falls. So even though he lands on his feet, kind of, he uses his feet to brace his impact, the entire upper torso of his body continues to follow the laws of gravity, and he decides to fuck the canvas of the ring with his face. He immediately rolls out of the ring and is using the security railing to help him move. I'm thinking concussion easily. Easy concussion right here. Now, I'm not a doctor, and I didn't go to Harvard, so I'm not 100%. But needless to say, it's 1998, and the match continues. To help Vader buy some time, Mark Henry turns to the camera and flexes. Okay, he's the world's strongest man. He's trying to get some heel heat. This makes perfect sense and is a pretty nice, calm way to keep the crowd interested in the match without drawing attention to Vader. However, on commentary, we get, Ha ha ha! Look at this guy! He's out of control, Henry! Yes. 
<laughs> Those flexing motions were completely out of control, and Henry Mark should be reprimanded about it. Uh, Mark Henry does follow Vader to the outside, though, as the match must continue, and he kicks Vader in the gut. On commentary, we get, Go downstairs! That's smart! It is indeed, Shane. It is indeed. Now, they get back in the ring, and Henry is in control. He's beating down Vader, and Mark Henry's great at this. As a matter of fact, he did this one time at a house show I was at and interacted with me as a fan, and I was so happy. Mark Henry, the performer, started yelling rhetorical questions to the crowd. For example, he hit Vader, and Vader fell to the floor. Mark Henry looks to the crowd and says, See that? On commentary, we get, I see it! Mark Henry hits Vader again, and again asks the crowd the exact same question. However, Shane O'Mac once again feels the need to answer this rhetorical question, and we get, Yeah, I'm feeling you! I'm feeling you, dog! Because Vader is a sloppy worker, eventually Mark Henry gets busted open the hard way. Mark Henry is bleeding in a disgusting, filthy way from his mouth because I'm sure when Vader was doing his punches, he probably had to get one in for good measure as payback for the concussion or he's concussed and he just doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. Either way, I wouldn't have faith that a 1998 Leon is going to be safe to work with. But I've never been in the ring with him and I'm not trying to throw shame. But as Vader is doing his uh, 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 Vader punches, one of them is into the midsection of Mark Henry, and I fucking swear to you, we get Vader going downstairs now. It, it just stands out so much because last week it was downtown, and this week it's downstairs. Like, were they in a meeting, and, and somebody was like, Shane, I don't know about this downtown stuff. I like that you want to develop a catchphrase, but can we think of something else? And that something else was fucking downstairs. They go outside the ring again to continue this Godzilla King Kong style battle. And Henry is bleeding profusely, as I mentioned, from the mouth. But its business is really picking up from that mouth, mouth area at this point. Mark Henry, the character though, is still in control of the match. And he Irish whips Vader into the stairs. Now Vader runs into these stairs poorly. Like, very poorly. But he does indeed hit the stairs and react to it in a way that's indicative of that. However, on commentary, we get, Oh! Vader put the brakes on! Indicating that Vader blocked it. As Shane McMahon... Let's go back to that sentence, because as Shane McMahon is saying the sentence, which we'll go back to, pay attention to where I'm at when I say the word put. Oh, Vader, put the brakes on. As he says the word put, Vader is already on the floor, selling injury, looking like an overstuffed sack of shit that was produced from a family of five that ate only Sonic drive through food for a month. He is selling this like grim death, but yet Vader put the brakes on. Jim Ross talks about the side effects of Mark Henry tasting his own blood for the first time in WWF history. Meaning it's the first time Henry's gotten busted open in a match. 
Now, Shane McMahon wants to add something to this thought pattern. And we get, it's gut check time for Hendry. And I was confused because I wasn't aware of a sports entertainer named Hendry. And I thought maybe I just misheard it. And I have the closed captions on. So I did a rewind. And wouldn't you know it, a little fun with closed captions indeed. Because it does say Hendry on the closed captions. (laughs) Mark Henry goes into what would become the finishing sequence. He hits two big splashes, again, like the ultimate warrior. He, he goes for the cover, and they look good, I should say. I don't say like the ultimate warrior, you know. Uh, and it makes perfect sense for Henry, a guy this size, and he jumps. He's got a great vertical. This is not to throw shade at Henry. 1998 Henry is not ladder Mark Henry. It just takes time, and that's okay. Because aside from uh, the athleticism that he gives in the ring, it's so much fun to see how much fun Mark Henry is as like, a personality as well. So I really appreciate that. That being said, uh, this match is insane, but for all the right reasons. But anyway, he hits the two splashes and he picks up Vader and breaks his own count. Okay? He then says, fuck the COVID protocol and starts spitting blood everywhere. And while this is an interesting visual, I think it's disgusting as fuck. Uh, Just whomever's doing it, wherever they're doing it, I I just think it's kind of gross. All right? Now, he hits another splash. And, again, won't let the referee count the three. Now, the Vader character is hurt at this point, but not hurt in a way that, like, he's hurt. It's just he's clearly going to lose this match because Mark Henry has been dominant for too long. There's no way Vader can really come back. Okay? Um, Mark Henry does some great character work or just great work out an accident because as he's, like, walking around... Like and showing that he's dominant over um, Vader, he starts smiling. And because of all the blood in his mouth and in his teeth, he kind of looks like the fucking bloody Joker, and it's really fucking cool. Unfortunately, Shane McMahon decides to deliver this on commentary as we get this amazing camera shot. He's P.O.'d! Oh, Henry is P.O.'d! So, P.O.'d is the phrase that uh, Shane McMahon's decided to use. I guess it is a Sunday evening television show, but come the fuck on. Another splash is hit by Mark Henry. And then the bell rings. Now, I know that I sometimes make fun of bad matches or don't properly pay attention to good matches and what have you, but I was really into this match because I wanted to really illustrate to myself what Shane said in contrast to what was actually happening. But this next point has nothing to do with Shane at all. When the bell rings, I'm thinking, damn, they're putting Henry over hard. Because this is clearly a, a Vader can't defend himself, so Mark Henry wins basically by TKO or involuntary submission. I mean, this happens all the time for a thousand different reasons. And I was like, damn, they're putting him over hard. That's pretty cool. Um, you know, because we all know Mark Henry would, you know, he goes up and down the card. You know, it's just one of those things. But the announcer comes on, or the ring announcer, I think it's Tony Chimmel, and says that uh, Vader has won by disqualification. And I don't understand this at all. Mark Henry did nothing that was disqualification worthy. Now, I rewound this three times. And the only thing I could pick up on was that when Henry was uh, picking up the count, if you will, 
My, referee Mike Yoda was saying things like, come on, he's out. Like, come on, like, show some mercy, man. But not like, come on, he's out. You have to pin him. You're breaking the rules because that's not a rule. And, of course, you come back at me and say, well, Johnny, see, there are no rules, man. But when you're a writer or when you're creating uh, a storyline or telling a story, there's inherent rules to that story. For example, if I was going to tell you a wacky story that happened to me at the grocery store today, if right in the middle I'm like, and then this dude flew away and started, you know, pissing on everybody as he flew away. It, what, what? That can't happen because you. I established in the preamble that I was going to tell you a funny story that happened to me today at the grocery store. Okay? So it's a real world story that has real world rules. Now, the, the, the world of professional wrestling contained within this sports entertainment league has rules. And I don't know that there's a you're winning too much rule that you're disqualified because Mike Chioda wasn't warning the Mark Henry character that he was going to disqualify him for hitting a man when he was down. He was basically pleading a case like, oh, come on, man, he's down. What are you going to do? You're going to do more? Oh, come on, man. You're a dick. Like, that's the vibe I got was Mike Chioda was like, oh, Mark Henry, you're being a dick, man. Not Mark Henry, I'm going to disqualify you. I don't know. I'm not really that angry about it, but it was just so interesting to me that isn't there somebody there like hitting the logic button when they're coming up with these finishes and then it, they could just easily come back to me like what are you some kind of fucking mark dude it's a show we can do whatever we want and change the rules whenever we want and sure you can when you're a kid playing freeze tag and you all agree that it's 10 seconds you're frozen and then you unfreeze yourself after five and you're like yeah but i got a force field it's only five seconds for me you could change the rules that way. You know, I can't... Anyway, I'm not going to go on with it any further. I've taken it to the limits. Uh, JR is putting over the brutality of Mark Henry on commentary. And that is cool again because Mark Henry is like looking right into the camera and his mouth is all bloody. He's got blood in his mustache goatee area and he's got snot in his goatee under his nose. And we get, ooh, nice blood snot there in regards to fucking the blood snot. Um, I don't, you know, backstage, young Michael Cole is outside the Undertaker's locker room. He says he spoke to the Undertaker. Undertaker heard what mankind had to say and will have a statement to deliver later on. And then young Michael Cole promises he'll wait outside the Undertaker's locker room like the good little puppy that he is waiting for the Undertaker to give more information. And we head to commercial. It's crazy. It's just fucking crazy. And I don't rank matches. This is not what this show is about. It's just a fun journey of reminiscence. But I will say this. Between the Foley promo and this match that I just covered and this commercial break, I know that I've been talking for quite some time. But in terms of television, from the opening logo to right now in the program, it's 14 minutes and 3 seconds of an investment of your life. And you know what? There are a lot worse ways to spend 14 minutes and three seconds. I I don't know. I was, you know, I've had a lot of fun at it at its expense, and we're only 14 minutes and three seconds into the actual fucking heat show. But those were really good. So, yeah. Maybe check it out when you're done with the show. We are back from the commercial, and it's draws and the headbangers coming down the aisle again for the second match of the evening, and I start to have flashbacks, because if I'm not mistaken, they were also the second attraction on the first episode of Sunday Night Heat, but 
We don't have to watch Draws puke, so it is a little bit better. Couple of sign alerts. We get a fantastic choppy choppy sign as that has uh, really entered the zeitgeist of the WWF fans at the time because it's pretty uh, recent in memory. Also, I saw a sign that I thought said Sushi X. I saw it again later in the evening and it wasn't a Sushi X sign. But folks, I think it's time to finally put this out into the public sphere. Were there multiple Sushi X's? Was Sushi X simply a pseudonym held by individuals that wanted to make an impact in their area? And here's why I mention that. If I'm not mistaken, I've heard JT over on the North-South Connection podcast network. I'm not trying to tell tales out of school or speak out of turn. But I believe I've heard him talk about he followed a Sushi X wrestling reviewer or someone like that, perhaps in the early days of the internet. Now, if that's the case, I'm confused. Because I know Sushi X as the mysterious fourth reviewer in the Electronic Gaming Monthly video game magazine. See, uh, back in the back, or at the end of the magazine each month, they would have the reviews of games that were being released. And it was like a four-person panel. And Sushi X was the mysterious fourth person that we knew nothing about that gave uh, reviews to, he gave high reviews, that is, excuse me, to uh, Japanese-style games, kind of like your RPGs, your tactical RPGs and stuff like that, Um, and also other games. It's irrelevant. It's not that he was just favoring those games, but he was sort of known for liking those sorts of games, and I did too, so it really stood out to me. Plus, his portrait was a little ninja guy, and his name was Sushi X. That's kind of a cool name. I mean, putting X on the end of anything automatically makes it cool. Like, if you're at a barbecue and you offer your uh, you know, your neighbor a chair to sit down in, and you're like, here, you want a lawn chair? And they're like, no, thank you. But if you're like, here, you want a lawn chair X? They might be like, oh, lawn chair X? Well, what's that do? You know, and so on and so forth. You can apply it to everything you find in your daily life. And here come Tennessee Lee and Jeff Jarrett as they introduce their problem solvers, Southern Justice. Well, holy shit. Now, I'm not here to promote Southern Justice as a positive thing, but I do have quote-unquote positive memories of Southern Justice. Now, as I'm reliving these Sunday Night Heat episodes, I'm remembering that this was a time in my life when I got to go on a vacation with some family friends. Um, which was a unique experience for me because usually every vacation I had been on had been with my own family. And I remember it was around this time specifically because, folks, I attempted, I don't want to say attempted to, I somewhat demanded that the evening of Monday when we were on this family vacation, uh, it had been a lighter day where we swam outside all day on the beach and we were hanging out in the house that we they were renting on Monday evening, sort of ordering in, which was perfect for me because I had a devious plan, and that was to control the television to watch Monday Night Raw, and I was successful up until the moment where they started talking about how they were going to cut off Val Venus's cock during this episode of Monday Night Raw, at which my friend's mother declared, no more wrestling. Just like she was the fucking Scarlet Witch or something. She says, no more wrestling, and wrestling is gone forever. 
at least for the rest of the vacation. Now, what the fuck does this have to do with Southern Justice? Southern Justice was a new tag team, and that made the phrase Southern Justice fresh on my mind. And so when wrestling was quote-unquote canceled by the monster, (laughs) we decided to watch Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, because I had freshly purchased a widescreen VHS copy of the film at the mall that we visited earlier in the day. Again, what the fuck does this have to do with Southern Justice? Well, if you're familiar with Halloween 4, one of the subplots of the film revolves around a group of local Haddonfieldinians, that being the city that uh, Halloween takes place in, Haddonfield, Illinois, who are a little bit on the uh, let's drink some beer and get her done side, that decide to drive around town hunting for the evil spirit that is indeed Michael Myers. (laughs) And I as a shorthand when trying to talk about scenes involving these characters, gave them the moniker Southern Justice. And to this very day, my friends and I will speak positively and laugh at the characters of Southern Justice that appear in Halloween 4. Jim Ross does his typical shtick when characters have been repurposed. He's like, Mark Haterberry, formerly Henry Godwin, and Dennis Nye, formerly Phineas Godwin. And... And I'm, and I'm serious here. Does he do this so we don't feel stupid? You know, does he imagine the viewer at home being like, well, that's not Mark Canterbury. That's Henry Godwin. They're trying to trick us. I don't know that anybody who's in on it really thinks that way. Because when he talks about how they used to be Henry Godwin and Phineas Godwin, etc., it it actually makes me feel stupid. It doesn't make me feel less stupid that he's explaining it. I can't really explain why. I guess it sort of brings to the forefront the disconnect in my head. Like, I know that's Henry and Phineas Godwin, and I know that these guys are performing as characters, but I can look at them and just know that it's a character change and and they're serious now and et cetera, et cetera. I do all that work in my head for them. When they bring it to my attention, it makes me feel stupid for attempting to fill in the logical gaps for them. I don't know. The bell rings, and we get Southern Justice and the Headbangers. Bam! So Shane McMahon, the original uh, Emerald, I guess. JR, uh, since this is a tag team encounter, hypes a match tomorrow night on Raw that we've never seen before. Now, at this point, I was digging through my head and my memory, trying to think, oh, what could this be? Is this like some sort of crazy, like, burno match or something really attitude era-y? that we don't expect to see, but no, and it's crazy, because it makes me feel so fucking old, because the match we're going to see tomorrow is basically, he calls it a four corners match, but it's a fatal four way, like the first fatal four way the WWF put on uh, happened in 1998, and now it's like common play, I expect one to happen all the time whenever they need to get a bunch of people on TV at the same time, but it's a tag team title match, Austin and Taker defend against Mankind and Kane, defend against the Outlaws, and Rock and Owen Hart, which honestly sounds like a lot of fun. But it was crazy to me that this is the debut of the Fatal 4-Way concept, again, just making me feel old. Dennis Knight chokes one of the headbangers, I think it's Mosh, with a tie in the corner behind the referee's back, to which we get, oh man, he's all tied up. And then there's some silence, and we get, that's a one-liner, JR. You know, 
And Jim Ross is like, oh, I get it. I get it. I get it, kid. It's just not fucking funny, you piece of shit. Goddamn Shane McMahon out here. Where's the king? Where's the king, Shane? I don't know where the king is, Jr. He, it's possible he's in the back. Well, we know he's got his demons. King, get better. There is a fantastic moment where Mosh eats a big clothesline. And Shane goes, oh! And that's not very funny, but here's what's great about it. As he's doing this long sound, we see Shane McMahon in the background at the announce table, clearly on camera, with his mouth firmly shut, flipping through the format. Now, I'm not a fool, and I know you're not a fool. We know that the the commentary for this shit's done in ADR, in post, in a booth in Stanford, which makes the Shane McMahon comments all that more egregious because it can be edited profusely. But I just love little moments where they get caught. It makes me feel smart after they just made me feel stupid. And so I'm going to allow it. Eventually, Draws and Jeff Jarrett get involved. Tim White struggles to regain control, and we've got a double disqualification. A great sign in the audience takes me back to 1998. Shamrock fears Gracie. Now, I know who Gracie is. That's Hoist Gracie. Because, folks, I don't know if it's a similar story in your life, but, man, did I grow up renting some UFC tapes. Because they started putting the UFC tapes right next to the WWF tapes. Now, I grew up in a smaller town. We did not have any chain video stores. So, well, eventually, ironically enough, in like 2010, the small town got like a family video when it was too late. And I was like, what? Mom and dad call up so proud. Well, Johnny, she... And my parents don't sound like that. But for the purposes of the gag, they do. Well, Johnny C., we finally got ourselves a family video. And I was like, family video? Pops, that's where they've got the fun videos in the back. No, none of that really happened. But I've always been flabbergasted by family video having the massive porn selection. Just because it's called family video. Like, I don't know. It cracks me up. But my point is is that they started putting the UFC tapes next to the wrestling tapes because I grew up in a small town with mom-and-pop video stores, uh, which is cool because the mom-and-pop video store I've, I, I frequented is one of my favorite places of all time. I know that sounds silly, and I'm not going to get into it, but whatever. But these early UFC tournaments are so fucking insane when you consider the fact that they're ridiculously unregulated and there's no weight classes and these guys are fighting multiple times in a night. Like they're goddamn bums. It's like bum fights. Actually, bum fights may have had more honor than the early UFC fights, for God's sakes. I feel like bum fights were more tightly regulated. And you know what? Now that I'm thinking about bum fights, that's not actually a funny thing. But it's the first thing that popped into my head. So the fact that it exists or existed and people actually did it, awful. Uh, but whatever. I'm not going to wax any more on it. Uh, Michael Cole is waiting again for The Undertaker as we head to commercial. We're back from commercial, and holy shit, the WWF Light Heavyweight Championship belt is on the screen. I haven't seen this thing in years. I was ready to start putting it on milk cartons. Like, I haven't even seen it in the archives. Like, did they digitally erase it from history? But it's here. Taka and Yamaguchi-san are coming down the aisle. I don't know what they're here for because the announcers are talking about something else. And Wax Pac! Wax Pac! 
And I'm like, wow, let's do this. Taka Mishinoku versus X-Pac. We get, oh, it's X-Pac, baby. Uh, showing that Adam Cole did indeed steal it from Shane McMahon. And it's weird to hear Shane McMahon call X-Pac, X-Pac. Because I always expect X-Punk. But we're far from that. He's alone tonight, being X-Pac. And the narrative is DX might be breaking up. It sounds like a different tune from last week, when you can recall DX had the ladies uh, showing the tatatias to the uh, television cameras. It sounds like the number one contenders match on Raw went south. And they do show a clip, and it looks like China picked a side and helped Triple H in the number one contenders match. But if you're X-Pac going into it, don't you expect some china fearance for Triple H? I mean, it's Triple H in China. No gags here. It's They're a unit. They've always been a unit. They always were a unit until, of course, the corporation stuff. And then even in the early championship months, they were still a unit when they were pursuing single stuff. And there shouldn't be any anger there. You know this going in. It's like, I mean, they're not married in storyline or in real life. Like, But it's kind of like you know that it's a pa- it's a tandem. You know that when you go into battle with China, China's going to do shit like that for you. Uh, if you ask me, X-Pac just needs to grow up if he's truly angry about this. Now, as the bell rings, we get a fantastic variant, which is something I love to track. And if you love variants, I talk about them quite incessantly over on the North-South Connection Podcast Network every other Sunday when I bring to you the multiverse of fabulousness. The North-South Connection podcast feed is a fantastic feed that covers all the different eras of pop culture and professional wrestling. But on the Multiverse of Fabulousness, I specifically look at variants in the timeline. Sometimes it's rebooking pay-per-views or rewriting history to create scenarios that couldn't possibly have happened in the real world. Let's see, it's June here in 2022, so I know this month we've got coming up a fantastic evaluation of what would happen if the WWE decided to revisit their Lantern Core list, which was a list they created of WWE superstars that would go join the various DC Comics Lantern Cores. That's a, a, a two-spot with Jennifer Smith from the Jenny Position on the North-South Connection Podcast Network. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I hope you all enjoy that. And we've also got a rebooking of the WCW 2000 reboot coming your way as well this month over on the North-South Connection Podcast Network. But back to the variant that caused the promo. X-Pac does indeed do the crotch chop to Taka Mishinoku. He does three little ones in a row. And as he does each one, he kind of does a little jump forward. At the end of the three crotch chops, he puts his hands into a praying motion and bows to the ancient one that is Taka Mishinoku. It doesn't age the best, but it sure was fun to watch. We get on commentary, it's pee-pee time, as Shane McMahon hypes John Wayne Bobbitt appearing on Raw tomorrow. Holy shit, I'm enjoying this match, but about two, mon- two minutes into it, X-Pac hits the X-Factor and we get a 1-2-3. Now, we know this isn't a match review show, folks, but if you want to know what possibly could have been, the match was about two minutes and ten seconds long, and we got three different double features in that time period. 
Now, this isn't some sort of hidden treasure trove or whatever. It's only two minutes long. But, man, three more minutes even for these guys, and we might have been looking at something special again that you could point out to your buddies, like, hey, Sunday Night Heat 2 is actually pretty fucking good. But here comes the rest of Kai and Tai, and then the New Age Outlaws and Triple H make the save, and Triple H is wearing the fantastic wax blot shirt. We get a kaboom variant as well, because Billy Gunn throws Men's Tao over the top rope onto the waiting Kai and Tai group. But instead of kaboom, we just get boom. Yamaguchi-san attempts to flee the scene, but China is on the top of the ramp in her sweet black singlet. She punches Yamaguchi-san, and Yamaguchi-san really puts in the extra effort by forcing himself to roll like a bowling ball down the entire length of the ramp and bumping into Taka Mishinoku at the bottom. It was a super fun segment. China's looking fly as fuck. Triple H is posing on the top turnbuckle, doing his X's. X-Pac walks by, and in a sign of solidarity, sort of gives him a little love tap on the rump, as teams are known to do. We get... From Shane McMahon, a little sportsman going on right there. A love tap on the keister. Oh, excuse me. A little tap on the keister. So Shane has really got his eyes on the keister, which will come into play soon. Billy Gunn, X-Pac, and Triple H moon the camera as we head to commercial. We're back from commercial, and little Michael Cole lets us know that The Undertaker did indeed invite him into his locker room for a chat. But once he saw there was a camera, he refused to let the camera in. But Michael Cole tells us that when he arrived in the locker room, he wasn't sure who he was looking at. Now, this is a little strange to hear because clearly he should be looking at The Undertaker. We get on commentary, what is he, blind? Here comes Bradshaw for our next contest, freshly free of his Terry Funkness. They show a replay of Terry Funk eating a clothesline from hell at the fully loaded pay-per-view after a breakup between this tag team. Immediately out of the replay, we cut to Dustin fucking Runnels in his mechanics gloves praying in the corner. And folks, the sight of him praying made me immediately laugh my ass off. Now, it's not nothing wrong with praying if you're into that sort of thing, but the character is absolutely hilarious. And... The way that he's overdoing the praying so everyone can get a good look all the way in the back row is just a thing of like play acting craft or just it's it's so much fun to see him do this because, you know, Dustin's good at this type of stuff. On commentary, we get, you can't play Bradshaw. You know, Bradshaw, gear it up here. He's up and coming in the WWF just doing what he does best, which is beating Keister. (laughs) So... Two keisters, two segments in a row, probably about two minutes of real-time footage between the two keister instances of keister. Will we get any more? I'm just fearful that this keister per segment ratio is getting very high. The bell rings, and Dustin offers uh, Bradshaw the handshake of honor, but he eats a boot instead. And then, folks, after Sunday Night Heat, the heat continues as we start our weekly segment, of hyping up the rest of USA Network's Sunday Night Heat lineup. Now, they're tag-teaming it this week. Last week, Shane was on the call. JR lets us know, Jamie goes undercover porno-style to break up an illegal prostitution ring. That, 
on an all-new Pacific Blue guest starring Triple H. And holy fuck, I kind of want to watch that episode of Pacific Blue. Then, crimes of passion heat up Palm Beach on an all-new Silk Stockings at 9. And at 10, Nikita comes face-to-face with a deadly computer on an all-new La Femme Nikita. I think it's brilliant that JR got to cover the show uh, where the person comes to face-to-face with a deadly computer. Because i got to imagine that's how Jim Ross, especially in 1998, felt every time he sat down at a computer. Oh, JR, we need your expense reports. <laughs> JR sits down at the computer and fucking breaks into a cold sweat. <laughs> He's frantically looking for someone to call. King, this computer's got demons. I need you to come, I need you to come fill out my expense reports, King. Please. <laughs> Uh, breaking news, though, for the rest of the broadcast, apparently Draws has challenged Jeff Jarrett to a singles match tonight, and Tennessee Lee has accepted the challenge on behalf of Double J, and it's going to be going down tonight on Sunday Night Heat. Oh, here's a gag that I didn't plan on, but as I'm going through my notes as to what to say out loud into this microphone, I was going to say, Ruddles has a WWJD shirt on, and I'm desperately trying to figure out the reference. Now, my intent was to research it and explain what it was on the show, but I swear to you, this is the honest-to-goodness truth. Like, I, I just have... When, when I'm thinking WWJD in terms of wrestling, I'm thinking WWKD, as in what would King do? And I'm like, oh, who's the J in this situation? Uh, now, hey, if that's not your thing, it's not your thing and you're not going to know it. But I think it sort of penetrated into the cultural zeitgeist to a certain extent. So I probably should have gotten the reference and indeed am making fun of myself. Bradshaw hits the clothesline from hell and gets the one, two, three on his way out. Dustin thanks the man upstairs in a hilariously loud way. Like, he makes a big seed out of it as we head to commercial. And nope, there was nothing else to talk about in that match. It wasn't awful by any means. It's kind of interesting to see young Bradshaw beat the shit out of Dustin Runnels. Um, But there was no funny lines, no anything interesting to talk about. It's just in and out, so whatever. We're back from commercial with that attitude promo from Stone Cold Steve Austin. Sportsmanship, what a bunch of crap. You want mercy? Take your ass to church. Awesome. And oh, fuck me sideways again. It's another Draws' World segment. Now, I had prefaced earlier that we would be sans Draws' World, but yet here we are engulfed in what he has to bring to the table. And you know what, guys? His tattoos look cheap. I don't, I don't care. They do. They keep they keep talking about them one at a time, and I'm like, dude, some of these look like you fucking you had a a kid animated onto your arm. I mean, really stupid shit. And uh, you know, we cut to the. So this is kind of a weird on a send out. They show draws puking again, and of course, I want to throw it myself. But we cut away to the WWF control center from WWF Mania, the show, like with all the spinning things in the background. And we cut to either Adam or George from the Adam and George sketches. Uh, it's the one with the darker hair. And he looks, he spikes the camera and he's like, anyone who pukes is okay in my book. And like gives a thumbs up. And that's the end of the Trosses World segment. I don't know. We're back to ringside though. And we get from Shane, J-Hart, you see any clam chowder coming out of Trosses' mouth. <laughs> it's fucking disgusting. Then we get... You gotta love that. The Dross is out of control. Now, 
Double J's coming out of the ring, and I did find this interesting as, as uh, Tennessee Lee introduces him on the mic. This Jeff Jarrett character coming down the aisle is a weird hybrid of almost all the different stages of Double J. He has on a white cowboy hat, but it's not like the Nashville singing character uh, hat because it doesn't have like the JJ lights or anything like that. It's just a regular white cowboy hat. But he does have the wonky chest double J gear. I don't know how else to describe it. It's a little frilly ribbon things. And now I really want to sing Jeff Jarrett's WCW uh, early theme song. God damn it, I'm going to do it. I just, it was like a, a tick, you know. I mean, I've been accused of having a case of the Tourette's, and sometimes I got a tick. Jeff Jarrett, I'm going to sing your song. And that is a double A Arn Anderson with Alzheimer's joke uh, from his own promo. It's not funny if somebody actually has that debilitating disease, and I'm not laughing at that. But he's got the cowboy hat, the wonky double J chest gear, and his don't piss me off glasses because they look kind of more like Oakley glasses than they do like stupid glasses that he would wear or even the hunting glasses he sports in WCW. Jim Ross claims on commentary that Jeff Jarrett is stealing his gimmick by wearing the cowboy hat, and I just thought it was funny that you heard JR say gimmick on TV in 1998. JR hypes the continuation of The Undertaker and Mankind stuff for later this evening. In response to that, we get another lawsuit from the Paramount Pictures Corporation because Shane says again, fight, 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 fight. Just like he's Beavis. So that's two. Count of two Beavis impressions from Shane tonight downstairs. Fucking amazing. Um, SummerSlam is proudly presented by Stridex. Triple clean your skin with Stridex medicated pads. Because the highway to hell ends at SummerSlam. And JR says this typical, I'm telling you folks, and I really mean this when I say this, nobody does pay-per-view like the WWF. The match is actually happening, though, and Draws hits a boss man slam on Jeff Jarrett. And uh, on commentary, we get, nice move by Draws, which is just something Vince would say. They casually announce tomorrow Draws uh, will fight Savio Vega in the Brawl for All. <laughs> will Vince McMahon be present to cheer on Savio? Boo! Boo, boo, boo! This is turning into the fucking jukebox max. Jukebox match could i be a jukebox hero i can't even say the word draws is getting all the offense in this match which is actually kind of weird because i figured double j would be a higher tier character uh but they need to tell a specific story with this match southern justice comes down the aisle now and no they ain't hunting mikey myers Double J knocks the draws outside jesus i called him the draws the fuck is wrong with me and then hits a baseball slide uh JR casually makes a claim that Southern Justice should appear on America's Most Wanted. And if he doesn't have any evidence, I feel like that's kind of mean. And JR should retract that statement. Uh, In the ring, Double J hits a sleeper, and I'm also almost asleep. Now, this has been a really strong episode of Sunday Night Heat, but I'm telling you, folks, folks, I don't mind telling you, mean Gene Okerlund here, not pleased with this contest, which is probably evident because my notes were like three lines long, so I'm throwing in all these fucking songs that I've been performing. Does, does anyone have any requests? 
Take my breath away. That song's kind of back in the culture, thanks to Top Gun Maverick, which you can hear me review on the North-South Connection Podcast Network. Got a special, like, two-hour-long sort of recap of Top Gun in the Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer cinematic universe. And then the second half is a spoiler-filled review of Top Gun Maverick. But judging from the box office numbers, most of you have already seen it. So give it a listen on the North-South Connection Podcast Network. Tennessee Lee uh, throws... uh, No, there was something else. No, there's more. There's more to cover. I I wanted to skip ahead, but I am going to cover it. Uh, The headbangers come down during the sleeper, and Shane McMahon says, JR, what exit are the headbangers off of on the Jersey Turnpike? To which Jim Ross says, Oh, I don't know. I'll have to look into it. Now, that's not very funny. But after Jim Ross says he has to look into it, Shane does the Vince. (laughs) It's just so crazy to hear that he's actually doing it. Both men in the ring are down now, and Tennessee Lee takes off his own cowboy boot and tosses it in the ring. But Draws is a criminal, and he steals the boot and hits Jeff Jarrett in the face. On commentary, we get cold cocked. Tennessee Lee grabs the boot back so he can walk, but Draws captures the one, two, three. And as Tennessee Lee's putting back the, putting the boot back on, Jim Ross says, "Well, if the boot fits, you must have quit, or something like that." And we get from Shade, talk about putting your foot in your mouth. On the way out. Uh, in celebration, Thrasher lifts his skirt at the Southern villains and shimmies his hips. And folks, I can see the complete ebb and flow of his cock. And speaking of unique cock configurations, Tennessee Lee is in the ring, giving Jeff Jarrett a hard time. They push one another around. Tennessee Lee gets on the mic and he talks about 11 herbs, spices, and then he orders Southern Justice to take out Jeff Jarrett. But you know what, guys? In a shock to no one, Southern Justice takes out Tennessee Lee. Dennis Knight hits a slop drop, but Shane calls it, Oh man, check that out! Uh... Jarrett grabs the mic and says, if you don't lack Southern justice, you can kiss my A-double-S. And uh, that is that. Here comes Mick Foley with a weapon, and Paul Bear and Kane walk behind him. This was after a brief talking head segment to let the other bad guys leave. But uh, like I said, Paul and Kane are walking behind mankind. Uh, I don't know what it is Mick is holding, but we get, well, mankind didn't come to the ring alone. Check that thing out in his hand. That's some sort of industrial strength uh, ice scraper or something. And I get a good shot of it now, and it looks like a fucking squeegee. Like a little thing that you would wipe water off of something with that goes, you know, a fucking squeegee. We head to commercial, and we're back. Shane lets us know, because on the... You know, and on the Peacock stream, I'm like, dude, there's like four, there's like a minute and four seconds left in this entire show. Is this going to happen or what? But Shane says, we've asked the USA Network for more time. But, you know, like I said, it's the future now, and I know how much time is actually left. Mankind is casually hanging out on the wing apron. Wing apron, did I say? Fuck me sideways. He's hanging out on the ring apron talking to Paul Bear. But Kane runs over, puts Mick in the chokeslam position, and straight up chokeslams him off the apron through a dinky little wooden table at ringside that was clearly set up just for this. Because at this point in time, we've moved to the uh, cartoon WWF announced table looking things. One of Shane McMahon's lady friends is just laughing profusely in the view of the camera as Mick Foley lays in the rubble of the table. Kane comes outside now and hits Paul Bearer. 
And then he punches Mankind again. And Shane goes, ha ha, yeah! And folks, the only thing better than hearing Shane McMahon say these things into a microphone is getting to watch his body movements at the exact same time. And that's what this segment gave us. Um... (laughs) In a fucking, this is pretty much the last big beat of the entire show. Kane grabs the steel steps and he inches closer to mankind, who is out of it and clearly about to get smacked in the fucking skull with these steps. Now, Shane McMahon says, Oh man, he's going! And then Kane hits mankind in the face with the steps, and the sound of the steel steps overrides whatever McMahon would say, and so McMahon remains silent. But god damn it, I'm on a cliff, folks, because where was Kane going? Downstairs, downtown, but he was hitting him in the skull. So would this be the variant? Would he finally go uptown or upstairs? Damn it, folks, the world is never going to know because Kane. Hits a tombstone, gets into the ring, uh, quickly rips off his mask to reveal it's the Undertaker in Kane's getup, hence Michael Cole being confused as to who he was looking at. I told you, my dad was right. He's a genius, my pops. Meaning that the uh, Vince McMahon character must have hypothesized that Kane and Taker were indeed together. Jim Ross yells, that's not Kane. That's the Undertaker, as opposed to, that's gotta be Kane! That's gotta be absolutely anyone but Kane! Who is it? Is it a dentist, perhaps? Nope, copyright hits, and that's the end of Sunday Night Heat, and thus the end of Kingfish. Um, it was a really good show. As you can tell, I had a lot of fucking fun with this one. That first 15 minutes was uniquely sort of all-time B-show stuff, because even that Vader-Mark Henry match that wasn't, I mean, it was good, but it was good in like a, a Goldberg shit show three-minute main event style match you get now. Um, so it's not like a five-star Tokyo Dome classic, but by God, it's certainly worth checking out. This, the whole show was great. Lots of fun. Awesome t- Kai and Tai taking me down memory lane. Uh, and I'm really, like, that really pays into this a lot because, you know, I wish I could say it's just an easy 45-minute watch for me, but, I mean, I take... I like to get the Shane stuff verbatim, and I can't focus and type, and so. But this was totally worth the investment for me. Everything from Bradshaw Runnels, in terms of you know, like Bradshaw Runnels and Draws Jarrett, is definitely fucking weak. Weak segments. Obviously, I turned into a human jukebox at the end, but the Kane Taker Mankind stuff at the end is incredibly short. But at least it does pay off. It's it definitely feels like the payoff on a B show. And Mick's promo was all-time B-show, maybe even onto an A-show, I mean, I would argue. So, if anyone remembers here on Kingfish, we do have a fun ranking scale at the end. Each episode of Heat is either uptown, midtown, or downtown, which, with a, which of course, makes sense. But don't forget, this is Kingfish, so downtown is good, and uptown is bad, because Shane McMahon is going downtown. This one... Is an easy downtown, but I'm adding my nostalgia into it hard. My gut, and you know what? It's a 48, it's a 42 minute show. It's up to, it's excuse me, it's downtown because of the first 15 minutes alone. That's enough to get it downtown, but the back end is very midtown. But B show 42 minutes can't discount how important that first 15 minutes is. We're going downtown this week on Kingfish, and that's gonna wrap up Kingfish. And I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've checked out 
lots of fun stuff that we have here in the Aqua Cave. I just want to give a special shout out to Stream Fighter 2, which, yes, is a gag off of Street Fighter 2, but it's spelled T O O as in also. Meaning, I'm one of countless other fucks who are fighting for attention when it comes to talking about uh, pop culture and recently released film and television. But damn it, that's what I'm doing. And I'm doing it on streaming shows. We've been covering Obi-Wan Kenobi. And this week we started covering Ms. Marvel. Every time they drop a new episode, you can expect a new episode of Stream Fighter 2 in the Aqua Cave shortly after. With that, I'm going to head to Midtown myself and we will see you the next time you want to fire up the krill and cook up a kingfish wow did i really say that (laughs) we'll see you next time on kingfish